welcome to the latest in the series of pension podcasts from the Stevenson Harwood Pensions team. You can subscribe and listen again on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. We will be issuing monthly podcasts as an alternative way of getting the information from our pension snapshot. I'm Dan Bowman, a consultant in the Stevenson Harwood Pensions team and I have with me Alex Rush, a senior associate in the team. Today we're going to talk about some of the key pensions law developments up to the end of February 2018. Firstly, Alex, I think you're going to kick off with the regulator's statement on managing service providers. I certainly am, and this probably is going to take most of the podcast, so there's a fair fair bit to get through. So in this statement, the regulator is providing summary guidance about the sort of good practice the regulator expects of trustees and scheme managers in relation to managing their professional service providers, and also planning for events which could have a major consequence on their schemes. The statement comments on the responsibilities of trustees in the following areas. Managing commercial relationships, risk management and business continuity planning, and third, resolving issues. An overarching theme of the guidance is an emphasis on the importance of appropriate systems and controls when selecting and monitoring service providers. So let's take the uh, the first key area that the regulator focuses on, which is managing commercial relationships. And this, the regulator highlights that trustees and managers remain ultimately accountable for the running of their scheme. The appointment of service providers to carry out specific tasks does not detract from that responsibility. Therefore, effective relationship management with such providers is key in the regulator's mind. It suggests that trustees can demonstrate management of the commercial relationships with their service providers by doing various things. Firstly, it suggests fully understanding the scope of the roles and responsibilities that trustees are delegating to third parties. Second, it suggests carefully reviewing the quality and suitability of service providers before appointing them. The third thing the regulator suggests as being important is confidence in the service providers that they have the requisite skills, training and experience to deliver their services. A fourth suggestion is being confident that their trustee service providers are operating in accordance with their legal obligations. And here in particular, the regulator recommends that trustees use service level agreements and implement regular reporting and monitoring to ensure those service levels are met. A further suggestion is uh, for trustees to take steps to address areas of poor for performance. And finally, the regulator highlights that trustees should implement procedures with a clearly documented procedure manual to enable continuous and consistent service where there is a change or failure in their service provider. The statement also recommends that when reviewing the suitability of providers, trustees should consider relevant independent frameworks which provide evidence of the suitability of the provider. Evidence of this, uh, examples rather of this third party review include ISO certification and independent accreditation frameworks for specialist functions like pensions administration. The second element of the statement is around risk management and business continuity planning. As part of their responsibility for risk management and business continuity planning, trustees need to ensure arrangements are in place to manage risks that have significant consequences for their schemes and their members. And to do this, the regulator expects a business continuity plan to be in place, which sets out the sorts of actions that trustees need to take if events occur which affect the running of the scheme. Principal example of this being trustees' plans in the event of a catastrophic failure of the third-party provider. Trustees are also expected to understand their provider's own business continuity arrangements 
and be confident that they ease any risks to member data and benefits. The final element of the regulator statement is around resolving issues. And here, the regulator suggests that trustees should work with their service providers to address any areas of concern or problem. It suggests examples of possible ways to resolve problems include requesting an improved level of service and using any complaints or mediation processes detailed in the relevant service provider contracts. Finally, when considering whether to terminate a contract with a service provider, the regulator suggests that trustees and scheme managers should think about risk, practical difficulties and costs to members before making that key decision to end a contract. So that's the uh, regulator's statement on good practice in relation to service providers. There was also some further news from the regulator in February around enforcement action that it was uh, seeking to take. And uh, this one came out in a press release from the regulator on the 15th of February in relation to fines for failure to comply with the requirement to issue a chair's statement. The fines were issued to six schemes and the regulator took the more unusual step of naming and shaming certain trustees of those schemes. By way of reminder, the chair's statement is a mandatory statement which trustees of defined contribution schemes have to prepare annually. It has to be signed off by the chair of trustees within seven months of the end of each scheme year. The regulator in relation to this uh, news was keen to point out that the chair statement should not be seen by trustees as a tick box exercise. It also appears to be unsympathetic to schemes who do not satisfy the requirement. So in its briefing, the regulator noted that it offers a quick guide for trustees about how to complete a chair statement to guide them through the process. And so in the regulator's mind, there was really no excuse for failure to comply. It also states that schemes that don't meet the requirements will not just get a fine, but the trustees of those schemes or the schemes themselves will be named on its website. In terms of fines for this breach, the fines range from around £500 to a maximum of £2,000. However, perhaps the regulator's promise to name and shame all offenders may pose a greater concern to schemes, and in particular, professional trustees of pension schemes. So that's uh, that's the roundup of news from the regulator. I think, Dan, you're going to cover some uh, ombudsman determination. Yes, thank you, Alex. Uh, in particular, a determination concerning a Mr. E. I'm just going to give you the highlights of that. So Mr. E decided to give his daughter £93,000 in 2015. Uh, He did this after considering several financial factors, including a spouse's pension quotation that had been provided by the administrator of his pension scheme. In 2016, Mr. E was told by a scheme administrator that the 2015 spouse's pension quote was actually incorrect and that the correct figure was a lower amount. Mr. E complained to the ombudsman that he would have given his daughter a smaller amount had he been provided with the correct figure in 2015. And so he claimed that he had suffered a financial loss due to the incorrect quote. So what did the ombudsman have to say? Well, whilst the ombudsman acknowledged maladministration on the part of the scheme administrator who should have got the quotation right in 2015, the ombudsman noted that the alleged financial loss suffered by Mr. E related to a contingent benefit. Payment of the spouse's pension was contingent on Mr. E's death. As such, it was a hypothetical rather than an actual financial loss, and so no compensation was payable on the basis of financial injustice. Having said that, the Ombudsman did order the pension scheme trustees to pay Mr. E £500 for the distress and inconvenience caused by the incorrect 
quotation. I'm just going to move on now to, to quickly cover a story concerning Dominic Chappelle. You may be aware that uh, Mr. Chappelle was the director and majority shareholder of the company which bought BHS for the princely sum of £1. Mr. Chappelle has been ordered by the courts recently to pay £87,000 for failing to respond to a pensions regulator information request. This request was made in relation to the regulator's investigations into the sale and subsequent collapse of BHS. So just to remind everyone, uh, Section 72 of the Pensions Act 2004, it provides the regulator with power to issue uh, a pension scheme's trustees or the sponsoring employers uh, with with what's called an information notice. And this notice requires the trustees or the employers to produce any document or provide any other information which is relevant to the exercise of the regulator's functions. Uh, So the regulator used this power to issue Mr Chappelle with an information notice in relation to its investigations into BHS. And the long and the short of it is that Mr Chappelle failed to provide the information requested despite numerous requests uh, and he was actually convicted at Barkingside Magistrates Courts of three charges of neglecting or refusing to provide information and documents without a reasonable excuse. The judge ordered him to pay a £50,000 fine, £37,000 costs and a £170 victim surcharge. I guess this is a reminder of the potential sanctions which can be imposed if the regulator's requests for information are ignored. I think this is actually the fifth criminal conviction secured by the regulator against individuals or organisations for failing to comply with a a Section 72 information notice. I guess it suggests the regulator is adopting a new hard line in relation to these information notice breaches. Uh, And finally, Alex, I think you're going to to cover for us uh, some forthcoming amendments to the statutory debt legislation. Absolutely. Just uh, going back on that, Dan, actually, just in mind is the white paper that was released by the government uh, just recently, which will probably be the focus of next month's podcast. But certainly within that, I think there were the references to strengthening the regulator's powers around these sorts of transactions. And so we might see an even firmer line from the regulator in cases maybe akin to Mr. Chappelle or otherwise. So uh, we'll have to keep an eye on that one. And no doubt, as I say, that'll be for next month's podcast. But yeah, turning to the employer debt regs, there was a a consultation that was launched in April 2017, um, which got round to being completed in February. And uh, the government in February announced that it was going forward with certain incremental changes to the employer debt legislation. And the main change is the introduction of a new deferred debt arrangement, or DDA, as a method to manage Section 75 debts that arise when an employment cessation event occurs in relation to an employer of a multi-employer scheme. These debts, as, as no doubt many will be aware, can be extremely substantial, uh, and so employers will often look at ways to mitigate or move them on to another employer if at all possible. So a DDA will enable an employer to defer the requirement to pay the employer debt that's triggered by the employment cessation event, This is also subject to a range of conditions that would need to be met before the DDA can be put in place. And a DDA may, importantly, terminate in various circumstances, meaning a new debt would probably arise. As a result of the consultation, a number of changes have been made to both the conditions for entering into a DDA and the circumstances in which a DDA will terminate. In particular, the funding test condition 
for entering into a DDA has been replaced with a lighter touch requirement concerning the Deferred Employers Covenant. The government has not watered down the power of trustees to terminate a DDA in certain circumstances, particularly where the trustees consider the relevant employer's covenant is likely to weaken materially in the following 12 months. That termination trigger may make DDAs rather unattractive to employers in most cases. However, DDAs may be of assistance to employers that participate in non-associated multi-employer schemes who might otherwise struggle to use any of the other pre-existing employer debt management options. Thank you, Alex. Uh, So that brings us to the end of this edition of the Pensions Podcast. Thank you for listening. And as I said at the start, don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud or on the Stevenson Harwood website. (laughs) 